five years ago and four years ago, there were two movies that hit the theaters, and it was a two-part story that included dozens and dozens of characters. And those two films would go on to become the second and the sixth highest grossing films of all time, collectively earning almost $5 billion. They were the Marvel movies with their cast of heroes and villains, and they're consistently big time earners at the box office. And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these are two of a handful of films that throw all the superheroes into one movie. And I will admit that I am not a big superhero movie guy, but I have seen these two. And it's fun to see the whole team come together for battle. It's the good guys saving the world from the bad guys. And if you put them all together in one movie, I will show up. And as I sat in the theater watching that second film, something would happen on the screen and you could hear people getting audibly excited. You would hear somebody say, oh, or ah, because they were recognizing moments in these films that were callbacks to other movies or these little Easter eggs, these little details inside of the films that meant something to someone who was well-versed in these big character arcs. And they'd turn to their neighbors, maybe throw them an elbow, they would get excited because they knew all of the backstories, all of the details of these individual characters. And I sat there happily enjoying the action and enjoying my popcorn thinking, I didn't get that. Maybe I'll check it out on YouTube later. There was just too much in these movies for a casual observer like me. The second movie was the 22nd movie in this film franchise, and I only had a passing knowledge of many of them. I know who Captain America is. I know the Incredible Hulk. I know Thor. I know Iron Man. But I don't know the full story. So I didn't know how to put all those pieces together. At one time, I did consider going back and digging deeper, going back to the beginning and watching all of those movies, but ultimately I decided it was okay with me if I only knew a little bit, if I knew just enough to be entertained. I didn't feel like I needed to be an expert. And the Old Testament of our Bible can feel like that. There's an overwhelming collection of individuals and people groups and locations and stories conflicts, and all the rest stretched over 39 different books. And we can recognize some of the connections and we can see some of the through lines, the stories that work their way through the Old Testament, through big names like Moses and Abraham and David. And we know the significant moments. We know of creation. We know the story of the flood. We hear of the promises of Jesus. And we can start again to piece some of those things together. There's a big story arc in the Bible. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we can see God's original plan and the rescue mission that he is on to restore what it is that he put in place in the beginning. And it's an epic story that rivals in detail many of these franchise movies that we are familiar with. The question is, are we interested and are we willing to dig deeper and understand those smaller details, or, like me sitting in the theater, enjoying my popcorn and the big moments, but shrugging off those little details 
is it okay with us if we don't fully understand how it all fits together? Feeling like knowing enough is enough. Our Wednesday morning preaching group recently worked through a book that we all expressed an appreciation for. The title of that book is The Epic of Eden, written by Sandra Richter, and she goes through the Old Testament story. And what she's seeking to do is frame it in such a way and provide organization so those central elements that we understand allow us to better understand the smaller details as well. It's a way to connect the dots and to gain a better understanding of the big picture and the little pieces within it. And her book has provided us with many of those oh and ah moments that I experienced in the theater. And there were times when her explanations made potentially confusing things more clear to us. And she also drew connecting lines between things that helped us make sense of what seemed to be scattered information across those 39 books. Her writing was very approachable, and it was so for both those of us who are newer to studying the word in depth and are more tenured pastors. It was good guidance for putting the pieces together. And Richter highlights two things that I want to share with you this morning as we prepare for our upcoming series of messages. And this is not a book report, but I do want to take us through two things that have helped us to have a better understanding of the way that God is working to redeem his family. And that is a central theme in her book. The first is the family unit. Families in the Old Testament were critical. And oftentimes they would cluster together in groups of as many as three generations, perhaps as many as 30 people, who were living around the patriarch, the eldest living male in that family line. And his sons and their families would band together until his passing. And at that time, he would pass the torch to the eldest son. And we hear biblical accounts of those blessings that were uh, passed down from one generation to the next. Blessings that came with responsibility to continue to take care of the family. And when that blessing is not taken seriously, or a younger brother tries to leapfrog an older brother, as we hear in the story of Jacob and Esau, there was trouble. Family order was important, along with the place that the family held inside of the tribe or the nation that they belonged to. And there were rules in place in that family and in that structure that provided legal and economic protection, things that would keep the family and the family line intact. And we heard that here not long ago when we went through the book of Ruth. And in that book, we hear a demonstration of the importance of the family unit and some of those things that are there to protect the family. We had in that story a father and his sons that moved from one location to another. And ultimately, daughters-in-law were drawn into that family unit. And when the father and the sons passed away, the wife, Naomi, and the daughters-in-law, which included Ruth, are in danger of losing those protections that are built into the family unit. And we see the family-related measures that are in place in the story of the kinsman redeemer. There's a member of the extended family that works to redeem and restore that smaller family unit. So Ruth and Naomi are drawn back into the wider family structure through Boaz, 
And that is done to protect the family, to protect the family land, and to maintain that family legacy. And in this and similar Old Testament accounts, God has a redemption plan for his family. And some of the rescues are more dramatic than others, and potentially problematic if they are viewed through our cultural eyes, but they are there to protect the family. Families matter, and God makes promises to his people, to his family. And today we are setting the stage for a series of six messages that will walk through six eras in the biblical story. And in each of them, week by week, we are going to consider the covenant promises that God makes with his people. And you're going to hear them chronologically. After today's introduction, you are going to hear next week the story of Adam and Eve, followed by Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And to close our year, we will talk about the new covenant that was established through Jesus Christ. And these messages will highlight the covenantal relationship with God and his people, that story of redemption, which is a fitting theme for our Advent season. It is Jesus who ultimately redeems us, but the redemption story began much earlier than that, and it progresses through these Old Testament accounts. And as we transition from a series of messages on the Psalms into these covenants, I share these verses with you from Psalm 103, verses 17 through 19, and it will be our central text for this morning. It says, But from everlasting to everlasting... The Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. We hear the word covenant in these words. And we hear that God is loving and he is faithful to those who, in obedience, follow his precepts, his directions for their lives. And then ultimately we hear that it is God who reigns over all. And these are important elements to recognize and to understand about covenants. And that is the second key thing, in addition to the family unit, that I want to talk a little bit about this morning. Richter draws comparisons between the Old Testament covenants between God and his people and the military treaties that were a part of that day. And she seeks to frame that relationship between God and his people in a context that would have been recognizable to the people of that day and also a model that I think that we can recognize, agreements between nations and people for the protection of one group or the other. And as I dug into that, it had me feeling like I was in grade school in a good way. Maybe you learned those types of structures as well. We had the lords and the vassals. When kingdoms were threatened by outsiders, they might enter into an arrangement, one nation and another, where they agreed to look out for each other. In some situations, it was a mutually beneficial relationship where they were both trying to help each other with self-preservation. There was a parity in this treaty. It was an alliance between equals. So it's kind of like one brother looking out for another brother. A second more common arrangement would be an inequality in the power. 
where a lesser nation would seek the assistance of a greater nation? Will you protect us? So maybe in that situation, unequal, more of a, a father and a son. Or as we heard, a lord and a vassal, a lord and a servant relationship. So there's a weaker party that not only has protection from the older party, but in some way they submit to their power. And that is the lord and the vassal relationship. And we understand that word. We've heard that word in our biblical context as well, right? The lord. That is what we use when we talk about God or we talk about Jesus. And he is the Lord in his relationship with his people. That is an unequal relationship. He is the stronger party. They are the weaker party. And that is what we see in most biblical covenants. It's just like these ancient treaties where the protection comes from the more powerful to the weaker. Another word that is used for Lord in those relationships is suzerain. And it highlights that if you are the one that is in the power position, you would want a little something in return for offering that protection. Maybe it's some sort of a tribute. Maybe as you grow your crops, a little bit goes to that more powerful entity that is offering you protection. Maybe you provide labor to that kingdom that supports them and their goals. The Lord would also, in this relationship, want exclusive loyalty. The nation that was in need couldn't just go around pledging their allegiance to anyone and everyone. And that's helpful framework in viewing these covenant promises. God's chosen people and God are not in an equal relationship. And if he's going to protect them, he requires that they would be loyal to him and only to him. And this is happening in a time where not only were people worshiping and, and paying tribute and honor to multiple gods, but individual people or nations would worship many, many gods. Exclusive loyalty in a time like this would be something that would be somewhat unusual. God says, I am going to be your one God. You are going to be loyal only to me. And God's love is for those, as we see in the first verse today, that show reverence to him not to those who throw him in the mix of every potential loyalty, every potential God that they could call on in their time of need. And that's not to say that the people were always obedient. They would fluctuate in their obedience to God, and we'll note some of that week to week. And we see much of that in the cycles of the biblical story. First they are obedient, then they are not. Sometimes they are more concerned for themselves, than honoring the God that they serve. And like that military treaty, again, there needs to be expectation. We see that in the second verse where it says, you are to obey. You are to honor the relationship. And if you do, things will be okay. If you stray from God, if you stray as a people, if you start to worship what these other nations are worshiping, if you start to practice what they practice, if you let your faithfulness wane, trouble will come. And we recognize that in the Old Testament story. When that happens, a lot of times God would withdraw the protection that he had promised to his people because they were not upholding their side of that commitment. In the big picture of the Old Testament, I invite you to consider that from week to week. In the covenant relationship with God, you may ask, what is it in this covenant that God is promising to his people? 
And at the same time, what is it then that he is expecting from the people? And in this moment, are the people obedient or are they disobedient? What is their life like when they align with God? And what is their life like when they rebel or when they forget or when they get complacent? And in those moments, what are the consequences? Keeping covenant with God requires that we remember his precepts. In Exodus, God promises that in keeping covenant with him through proper obedience, the people will be a holy nation. They will be a treasured possession. And that is, again, if they remain obedient. The whole earth, it says, is God's, but his people are in a unique relationship with him, and that connects with the final verse from that passage today. It says he rules over all, and he is faithful, and the question is, are we? I was in a Bible study on the book of Judges not long ago, and Judges highlights that cycle of obedience and disobedience and the problems that come when God's people stray from him, choose to be disobedient, or again, become a little bit complacent. And then they cry out to God, they recognize their error, and we see in that that God does remain faithful. When they admit that they have strayed, he rescues them and sends someone to help them to do that. And we joked around that table that these people just didn't seem to get it, right? Didn't they see this ups and downs, these cycles of obedience and disobedience, the success and the failure, the victory and defeat? How could they not understand that? And then we admitted we often fall into that exact same cycle, the ups and downs of our relationship with God, the faithfulness and the times that we fall. And what a blessing it is that God is faithful when we are not. That the head of our family would send his eldest son, his only son, as a ransom to redeem his adopted children. And we recognize the critical role that Jesus plays in our story, and we will talk about that on that last week, the new covenant that is promised through Jesus. But our story is not just a New Testament story. The Old Testament is part of our story as well. A story of God's love for his people. A story of continuing faithfulness through God, through the ups and the downs, through the joys and the struggles. A story of the redemption of God's family. Please join me in prayer. Lord, as we navigate the story of your covenant promises and your hand in the redemption of your people, From the garden to the coming of Christ, draw us into this epic account of your grace. Renew our interest in the Old Testament. Give us new insights and understanding that help us to put the pieces together. May we be filled with joy and humbled by the invitation that we have to join this covenant family. As Advent approaches and we live in anticipation of Christmas and the coming of Christ, I pray that you bless us with hope, with peace, with joy, and with love. May we live to tell the story of your redeeming love, our story and yours. Amen.